The richer you get, the harder it is to manage your estate. There's lots of moving parts like portfolio diversity, tax mitigation, asset protection, and estate planning. That's why the ultra wealthy use family offices, and that's where Valerity Wealth comes in for you. Run by a former sovereign wealth fund manager, Valerity Wealth brings institutional level expertise to the high paid professional. Let Valerity quarterback your finances. Book your free consultation at ValerityWealth.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. And today I would like to start out, as always, to remind you and to suggest to you that you go to wealthformula.com and pick up some of the downloads, including some of the free books on there, including The Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth, my Amazon bestseller, which you can get an electronic copy of also by simply texting 44222 and typing in Wealth Formula. But of course, you can go to wealthformula.com and get other uploads or downloads rather. And also, uh, you can pick up a copy of George Newbery's book there as well. It's called Burn Zones. It's a really cool book. Finally, I just want to remind you that a number of people have been trying to join Wealth Formula Network. Uh, the Facebook group, and that is actually a private group. It is a part of the private community that makes up Wealth Formula Network. And so uh, I would encourage you to consider joining. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. But basically what this is is a course followed up with a community that includes a private Facebook group, a portal um, and then we have bi-weekly investor calls, mastermind calls as well that basically kind of get into the nitty-gritty and let it all hang out. They're done via Zoom, so you um, so it's basically a big video conference, and it's a lot of fun. Very popular with the group. Again, check it out. I encourage you to join WealthFormulaRoadmap.com. Um, now, uh, as far as today's show, let's jump into that. So you might recall a while back, it was uh, several shows ago. I was sort of on one of these uh, weird off-topic type shows where uh, we're starting to talk about the brain. And you might remember me talking about part of the brain called the prefrontal cortex, which I find very interesting. As you may recall, you know, I spend some of uh, some time in the in the brain surgery business. So I am interested in this world a little bit. Uh, I continue to be fascinated with neuroscience. You know, the prefrontal cortex is the CEO of the brain. It's the part that makes the wise decisions, the good decision maker. It's a part that really is good about being wise as we get older. For example, if you see a teenager doing something very dangerous and potentially even lethal, you know, you know what I'm talking about, driving too fast, cutting around corners at 120 miles per hour. Uh, it may be due to a poorly developed prefrontal cortex. And if you think to yourself, man, that's reckless. But you know what? I would have done the same thing when I was 16. What the heck was I thinking? Well, the answer is likely that your prefrontal cortex has since become more mature. In fact, the prefrontal cortex, we know now, seems to continue maturing until your late 30s and even potentially into your 40s. And so the scientist in me 
wonders. You know, why in the world would that uh, be? What, what could the evolutionary theory behind that kind of late development be? Well, I have come up with an evolutionary theory on this. You see, when you're younger, you need to be fit and take some chances to survive. Now, I'm thinking to myself, if I'm a young caveman and I need to hunt and not be afraid to chase down, I don't know, a wild boar or something to eat, and, you know, it could, it, it's something that could turn around and kill me in return, uh, you know, I may not, I might be better off without a prefrontal cortex that's well-developed in that scenario. Otherwise, I might back down and in the process... Uh, die starving. Uh, wisdom in this case may lead to starvation and death, which is not a good outcome at that age. But physical prowess, whether we like it or not, does tend to decline for humans beginning at around age 30. You see it in professional athletics all the time, unless your name is Tom Brady. Um, and, you know, just look at it at the NFL running backs. I mean, it's like the magic number for NFL running backs. Um, and in evolutionary terms, by the time you are in your mid-30s, I hate to say it, but you're pretty much useless. I mean, you've reproduced, and you're not as fast as you were when you're 20 years old. So why do we need you? The rest of the tribe is not going to find much value in you. You're simply a waste of resources at that point. That is, unless you have something else you can offer the tribe that the younger the younger folks, you know, the young bucks, young bucks, get it? The young bucks cannot offer, like, say, wisdom or good judgment, you know, the tribal elders. Recall that living well into your, into your 7th century, you know, into, the, into your 70s, 80s, 90s, and beyond or whatever, this is a relatively modern phenomenon, right? Even in the United States, someone born... In the 1880s, might expect to live on average about 40 years. Back then, 40 was old, all right? It was old. So, uh, of course, I mean, that's, that's even the 1880s. You go back uh, centuries before that, we're talking about average lifespans into the, you know, 30s, uh, lower 30s, even high 20s. So, perhaps the maturing of the prefrontal cortex and the delay of that into the third and fourth decades of life actually coincides with the slowing of the rest of the body and provides a reason for the young hunters in the pack to keep you around. That is, instead of pushing you down a river in a canoe with your arms wrapped behind your back. Anyway, it's, uh, it's just a theory. Uh, you know, I am a science guy, so I think it's legit. But I must say that in my personal situation, I will say for sure that my prefrontal cortex really took off probably, you know, late 30s, I would say. And I feel like I'm becoming smarter every day. I mean, certainly a lot smarter. I'm 45, a lot smarter than when I was 35. Even if uh, my body, unfortunately, seems to, you know, be headed the other way. It's, um, you know, again, it's strange to think of myself a decade ago. I was a completely different person, definitely not as smart as I am now. But then, then again, maybe I wasn't looking for the same types of answers that I was uh, when I cut bait from residency and became a real, you know, professional and uh, somebody out on my own, so to speak. 
So I got to say, when I think about it, how I would have loved to ask Buck today a few questions back then, even though in reality, I was probably too stubborn and dumb to listen anyway. I remember having that issue with my dad, even as a, you know, as a teenager, thinking he didn't know what he was talking about. And then now I'm thinking to myself, man, he really did know what he was talking about. Um, even so, it would, have nice, it would have been nice to have someone like me around who kind of related with who I was uh, to, to kind of, you know, ask some questions and get some wisdom. Anyway, speaking of Ask Buck, that's the show for this week on Wealth Formula Podcast that is coming up. Hopefully, you're going to get something out of this show, at least enough so that you keep me around in the tribe and don't send me down that canoe. So that's what we're going to do when we come back. Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Ask Buck. Now, uh, before we get started, um, there was a number of questions, and I kind of had to weed through them a little bit. Uh, the ones that I have skipped, if you're wondering and you submitted something, uh, either they were potentially too specific um, for, a f you know, talking about a fund or some questions about it that I didn't feel like I could necessarily answer them on a podcast, um, or they were too specific to, say, an episode where I don't think that I was necessarily the guy to answer the question. Now, um, there's a couple of ways to get those kinds of questions answered. One is, um, you know, if it's about a show or something like that, um, that we did shoot me an email and I can actually connect to you. For example, I think we had some questions. I had a question on the tokenizing of home equity and I thought that was a good question. I just didn't feel like I was qualified necessarily to answer it. So I passed on it and, but shoot me an email and I'll just forward that to the guy who did it and you can talk to uh, talk to uh, you know the, the the actual guest that we had on the show that day. Um, 
The other way that you can get more sort of these insider stuff, which I try not to, you know, say I like something or I don't like something specifically or um, what I think of such and such. Generally, I won't do that so much on a general podcast like this because, well, frankly, I don't want anybody to like try to sue me or send me a cease and desist letter. Um, but that is the one of the advantages of being in Wealth Formula Network is, you know, that is sort of open forum. You know, we, we have a private community in there, and so we can say a lot of things to each other that we believe uh, to be the case, uh, sort of the insider information, um, the good, bad, and the ugly of what's going on out there. And so that would be another place to consider if you want to get those kinds of questions is to go to wealthformularoadmap.com and sign up for Wealth Formula Network. Now, with that, only a couple people actually recorded questions or comments. I wish we'd have more of those um, because I think they're more fun. But we do have a lot of written questions, so we'll just uh, we'll kind of go back and forth with a couple here. But let me start out with the first one. It's uh, Alan Francis. Uh, here we go. Hey, Buck. Leaving you a voicemail because you said you appreciate it. I was out to lunch today with a friend, and we got to talking about something called IOTA. I had never heard of it, and he was shocked that I hadn't. Um, so I do have some interest in the crypto space. Didn't know if it's something that you have researched in the past and thought if you did, maybe you could share your thoughts on it on your show. Thanks. Uh, yeah, thanks, Alan. Thanks for the question. appreciate that. So um, IOTA, I do know IOTA, you know, and it's, it's one of, you know, a lot of different projects in the space and um, basically it is a distributed ledger technology that enables people and machines too to transfer money and data uh, without any transaction fees. The thing that's really different about it or what the purpose of it is, is it helps basically to share data. That's the intended use. So in other words, it's, it's it's a place for sharing of data in a distributed ledger. Um, it is interesting. I don't know how big of a project this will end up being. I don't have any predictions on it. It's not something that I've really had on my radar so much. But I will say um, there was an interesting news uh, segment about it recently uh, that I caught uh, wind of, which was that Jaguar Land Rover is planning to allow helpful car drivers to earn cryptocurrency. That's That's what the headline was. And basically, the idea is that the company, um, what it's going to do is it's going to start testing some software that's going to allow drivers of its cars to earn this sort of IOTA cryptocurrency as a reward for sharing data. So basically feedback, you know, what's working, what's not working in the car so that they can improve the cars. And as a function for allowing, you know, the company uh, Jaguar and Range Rover to sort of peek at your data, you will get cryptocurrency in exchange. So it's, is it a good idea? Yeah, I mean, sure. I mean, I think, um, I think data sharing cryptocurrencies are uh, definitely something that I think has a role and you're starting to see some of this with, um, with what you're seeing with these guys uh, at Jaguar and Land Rover already. Now, do I recommend buying some buying this? Well, I'm not going to recommend buying anything in particular, but certainly it's a project with um, with promise, and um, you know it wouldn't be outrageous to have it in your portfolio. But yeah, bottom line is it's a data sharing type uh, cryptocurrency 
uh, distributed ledger that I think has some promise and it's worth looking into. Um, next question, Garth Olson, he says, I'm just starting my real estate business and feel a concern. It seems to me that the weather is getting more extreme over the years. Does climate change affect your real estate decision? Well, Garth, it's not just you. Yes, indeed. I absolutely am totally paranoid about these uh, these types of things. In fact, I don't uh, invest in a lot of parts of the country that I think that are particularly at in danger, uh, specifically coastal Florida, um, southeast coast in general, I think for me are pretty much off limits. In fact, I had a really good opportunity for our group recently in Melbourne, Florida for a self-storage opportunity, but turned it down. I mean, and the only reason I turned that opportunity down was because it was basically, you know, 15 minutes in, inland. And to me, you know, especially for something that's a long-term hold situation, whatever, it's just, listen, you can invest anywhere, anywhere in the, in the country or in the world for that matter. So if, if that's the case, why would you necessarily try to force an investment somewhere that has a higher risk, um, you know, from the climate? Now, you could say that about anything, right? Higher risk of this, higher risk of that. But the reality is, listen, climate change is real. I mean, I, this is real. And we've got a thousand, you know, 1,000 year floods happening every other year now. And so you can deny it all you want, but just take a look at the number of natural disasters in the U.S. and Puerto Rico alone over the past couple of years compared to uh, the frequency that we're supposed to be getting those kinds of storms. It's not even close. So I think it's actually very practical to, to consider weather patterns. And, um, you know, and one thing you might start doing, too, is, you know, weather patterns specifically in, um, will repeat themselves, too. So you can get a pretty good idea, you know, if, you, if you're wondering, you know, just because there was Harvey, Hurricane Harvey, um, and it hit Houston. Does that mean that all of Houston's off limits? No, no, not really. I mean, there was plenty of areas in Houston, for example, that were dry. And in fact, those areas are particularly uh, valuable now. So um, and, and it's a it's a booming market outside of, you know, some of those areas that were uh, significantly hit hit by the hurricane. So so anyway, bottom line is the answer is yes. Joseph uh, Baumgartner is asking, okay, so I've heard you uh, talking about wealth formula banking. I get the idea of accumulating cash flow, then borrowing it. Isn't that pretty much the same thing as using a home equity line of credit to leverage into other investments? Um, you know, it's a good question and one, frankly, that um, I didn't really understand myself initially. <laughs> you know, whenever I used to hear about this this kind of thing, I used to always hear like people talking about banking, bank on yourself and, you know, uh, be the bank. And I, I have no idea what they were talking about, honestly. I really didn't. Um, but then one day it hit me what the big difference is. And, and so I'm going to give it to you. So in a home equity line of credit, what are you doing? Well, in a home equity line of credit, it's pretty simple. You borrow money, um, you know, uh, based on the equity of your ho house, uh, which is uh, a secured debt, and you borrow it at a simple rate. Simple, right? Simple rate, simple. It's very simple. Uh, in wealth formula banking, 
the magic is really in the complexity of the borrowing feature. So let's say you have $50,000 cash value in your wealth formula banking account that's growing at say five, you know, five and a half percent compounding uh, interest tax-free. Now, the compounding interest is the very, very important aspect of this, right? So compounding interest mathematically is incredibly powerful. So if you don't know what that is, simply Google simple versus compounding interest and look at a graph and you'll understand. And you hear Warren Buffett talking about the power of compounding interest and so on. That's what he's talking about, okay? So in your wealth formula banking account, you're growing at a compounding rate. And now say you've got, you know, you've got a bunch of cash sitting in there and you want to borrow it. The beauty of it is that you can borrow it. Say if you were growing at five, five and a half percent compounding, you could even borrow that at five, five and a half percent and still come out ahead. Why? Because when you borrow it, you're not borrowing it at a compounding rate you are borrowing at a simple interest rate from the insurance company itself. Your money, which is in the insurance policy, the cash value, continues to grow at a compounding rate. You don't touch that money. It's growing at a compounding rate, and you borrow money from the insurance company uh, that's collateralized by your cash value at a simple interest rate. So... The arbitrage is not the, you know, maybe maybe there's a half per, percent interest between the actual numbers that you're borrowing at. So, I mean, say maybe you have a 5% compounding growth and you're borrowing at 4.5. It's not that 0.5 that's the big deal. The big deal is the arbitrage between simple and compounding interest, which over the course of five, six, seven years becomes extraordinarily uh, powerful. In other words, your money in your insurance account continues to grow at a compounding rate even though you've borrowed it and are making money somewhere else. That's why I call it double dipping. You effectively make money in two places at the same time. And who doesn't like doing that? So that's why uh, it's powerful and that's why um, I, and that's how it's different from a HELOC. But yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of confusion on that, so it's a good question. Now, if I, I, I will say this. This is such a powerful concept that I wish more people would actually take time to learn it. Forget about what you may have heard about insurance products and stuff, because the reality is what you realize is in the pecking order of the wealthy, right? You start out, you get people buying insurance products that they shouldn't, then they get smart and they don't buy them. And then they get even smarter and realize that if they structure them, if they buy products that are structured optimally, it's one of the best, most powerful tools you can use. And that's why the wealthiest people in the world use these kinds of, of plans. So do yourself a favor. I don't care. I really don't care if you do this or not. Um, but... What I do think you should do is do yourself a favor and learn about the concept um, because you don't want to be one of those people like I was. You learn about it, you know, five years from now and wish you had done it earlier 
like again, like I had done when I first learned about it. To do that, I would highly suggest going to wealthformulabanking.com and there's some webinars there from Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie who are uh, our partners on this. Again, that's wealthformulabanking.com. And you can also, while you're there, you can also learn about a really interesting concept called Velocity Plus, which is basically like investing in the S&P 500 with guardrails. Uh, but for those of you trying to figure out you know, what is your first step? You know, I get that question a lot as I'm starting to think about investing outside of Wall Street. What should I think about? I can honestly say that wealth formula banking would be a very, very good step for people to consider. It's not for everybody. It is for me, that's for sure. And I can honestly say that I don't know anyone who has pulled the trigger on this concept the way Christian and Rod have structured it and regret their decision. So, and again, just check it out, wealthformulabanking.com. If nothing else, you learn something, and any time you hear somebody say, oh, bank on yourself, or, you know, be the bank, and all that mumbo-jumbo, which was pretty much meaningless to me, will actually mean something to you. Um, okay, next question. I think it is pronounced Yuval, Y-U-V-A-L. Hi, I've been listening to your podcast for several months now. And I've noticed that you play, play back yourself endorsing AHP servicing fund in almost every podcast. You mentioned that the fund is liquid. However, when checking their website, they specifically mentioned that the investment term is five years. In the FAQ, they say that if you want to sell your A-class shares earlier, the company cannot guarantee that you will get your funds back. Why are you saying that the fund is liquid in the podcast? Am I missing something? Thanks. Um, yeah, I think you are missing something. I think when you read the fine print, yeah, I mean, every fund's going to say, um, going to give you disclaimers. You know, if everybody tried to pull out their money at the same time, they're not going to be able to do that, et cetera. Uh, but liquidity is a major feature of AHP servicing. Um, they may not be able to give you your money back uh, the next day, but typically uh, if you ask uh, their people it's you know they try to do the best effort to get you your money within 30 to 60 days so by definition that's liquid now i should also point out that as an aside that i talk about ahp believe it or not because i just want to support what they're doing they are not a paid sponsor of the program anymore and so I'm continuing to talk about them because I think they're worthwhile and, and I, I really do like these guys and, and trust them. Um, and I don't have any monetary uh, reward for doing that. But um, it is liquid. I know the team well. George Newberry is a friend of mine. And so I would go check it out, hpservicing.com. Jim Seitz. Hello, Jim. So you say, I know you've uh, referred on a number of times uh, wealth regarding the wealth thermostat. I agree with the concept. I'll admit that I believe my thermostat is lower than I'd like and lower than it should be. Although, unfortunately, I can't alter my genes or upbringing, I believe it's one thing hold me back uh, and I want to work on it. Do you have any recommended books or other information that I could read about elevating and increasing my baseline temperature? Any assistance would be helpful. So what Jim is referring to is I have this concept, which I really believe, called the wealth thermostat. In other words, you're pretty much going to make what you think you are worth, right? So say you're a six-figure guy, right? Say you are like, yeah, I make $100,000 a year. I make a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. 
Well, that's what you're going to keep making. And you're going to you're going to find your way back to that. You could lose all your money. You could, you know, you could um, you know, be unemployed or start a business or whatever. You'll get you, but you always end up at the same wealth level of wealth. You're a couple hundred thousand dollar guy. And then there's people who are, you know, poor. And no matter what, they're going to be poor. And then there's people who are going to be guys who are, you know, I make a million dollars a year, but I can't seem to make five. But then there's people who are making five, 10, 15 million dollars per year, or there's billionaires. And you look at Donald Trump. I'm not a fan of Donald Trump, by the way, but I will say that this guy's thermostat is off the charts, right? Loses everything, uh, and then he comes back, and he's wealthier than he ever has been. I mean, that's that's a wealth thermostat. I mean, you 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 see this all the time. You will be paid by the world as much as you believe you should be paid by the world. And I don't mean that in sort of a hocus-pocus way. I mean that it's just a psychological barrier. It's like the four-minute mile you know, the Roger Roger Bannister thing. If you just think that's my cap, well, that is your cap until somebody can convince you um, of otherwise. So as far as books go, you know, there's a lot of books out there, but my favorite is Napoleon Hill's classic, Think and Grow Rich. And um, the funny thing about this book is that it's probably the most copied book in history. It's pretty much everything that Tony Robbins uh, says pretty much what all of the self-help gurus say, and uh, it's just repackaged over and over again. But it's a phenomenal book. I really think it's worth worth reading if you want to um, unleash this you know, inner thermostat and make it go higher. Of course, speaking of Unleashed, there's Tony Robbins' Unleashed the Giant Within, which is also, again, people talk about it, but it's really... Again, the same type of thing. It's the ability to accept a new reality. And, you know, also another ripoff of of Think and Grow Rich was back in the 90s, I think it was. There was this movie called The Secret. And um, that movie, effectively, again, was really about, you know, manifesting things in your life. Like you can actually visualize something and make it happen. Um, So as a science guy... How do I possibly believe in this hocus-pocus? Well, I actually believe that it's not hocus-pocus. I believe it's actually energy. In other words, you basically you know, emit uh, some kind of energy, and, you know, you, and it comes back at you, right? And that's what I mean when I say you get what you think you deserve. So if you can believe that you deserve more, you're going to get it. That's really what I believe, and I, I feel like I've actually been able to change my own life by by understanding that a little bit. Anyway, this secret, right, this whole concept in this movie that made this lady a bunch of money, and that was her, like, you know, manifestation, I guess, uh, that whole idea uh, was really uh, actually brought up in Think and Grow Rich. They even called it the secret. So, anyway, that's what I would recommend. Michael question is any cannabis investments buck vc funds 
Well, I wish I could recommend something, but I'm not a raw cannabis guy, and I don't see, um, I, I, you know, I, I do see, I should say, pot going mainstream as inevitable. I mean, to me, it's like witnessing prohibition. Uh, the problem is, how do you identify Budweiser and Anheuser-Busch? There are a lot of mom and pop startups offering high returns, but I think they are very risky. I mean, that's just the reality. I think it's a very tough place because the banks are not interested in, et cetera, to have a high, you know, sort of a uh, you know, higher level organization. So you have a lot of risky uh, propositions with smaller players. And a lot of these smaller players, in my experience, these folks make the people in oil and gas look like Boy Scouts. They're, they're, they're not the most trustworthy uh, folks. Um, in fact, I will say that one of our investors in this group lost a ton of money with, a, uh, with, a, with an operator, I think last year, or maybe it was the year before that, and right now is in a federal lawsuit against that group for fraud even though they totally seem straight up. Uh, the investor uh, that I'm talking about, is he's actually a really smart, sophisticated investor, and he thought it was a great opportunity and was kind enough to introduce me to the group to consider partnering with them a while back. Again, I think it was about two years ago. So I had a conversation with these guys, and I can tell you that my impression immediately was that I just didn't trust them. And I didn't like the deal. I mean, I, I, the deal just seemed like too dependent on people. And the people I didn't really feel like I trusted very much. It just kind of smelled bad, the whole deal. I guess I guess smelled like pot. I mean, I don't like the way pot smells either. But the whole deal smelled bad to me, so I stayed away, luckily. I mean, now listen, I, I think there is there's stuff out there that's legitimate. I think that there's going to be people who make a whole lot of money doing this. I just I haven't found it myself, and I have a really hard time in this space because of the players who are involved. Okay, um, I'm going to play a recorded question or comment here. The other one that I have, I only have a couple of these, unfortunately, like I said. Okay, Sonny Holbrook. Hey, Buck, Sonny Holbrook. Just listened to your podcast for this week. And you're talking about a topic that I've been thinking about a lot myself the past three to six months. Why do I actually own gold when real estate seems to offer so many more advantages? I mean, I like the, I like the thought of just having some. Um, it just feels good. But I'm thinking exactly the same things you were thinking. Um, and I'm glad you've talked about this because... Like you, I don't know the answer yet, and I'm not sure what I'm going to do, but I'm probably not going to end up with as much gold as I have when it's all said and done, um, because I agree with everything you said. So, hey, just wanted to drop you a note and let you know I appreciate your thinking outside the box, and I'm with you. Thanks, Buck. We'll see you. Thanks for that, Sonny. For those of you who've been listening to me, you know I've been sort of on a sort of, you know, coming out of the closet about my uh, being underwhelmed with the idea of owning gold. So I've had a bunch of people on the show talking about gold, trying to get them to convince me why I'm wrong. Well, I still haven't really haven't gotten a, a good answer on that. So Sonny obviously agrees with me. However, um, right after that, I have a question, a comment, a commentary, I should say, from Chris Barnett, which I'm going to read. 
and it's it's in in response to my uh, critiques of gold, which I think are are certainly valid. So let's let's go through that. Chris writes, Buck, thanks for uh, taking the time and effort to put your podcast to the world. I enjoy your straightforward, honest, and inquisitive attitude toward the topics you cover. Thank you for that, Chris. Although I just found out about your podcast recently, I've noticed you've had a few concerning investing in gold. I felt that the guests on those podcasts did a good job of talking about some of the advantages of gold, but they missed a couple of things. Since you seem genuinely interested, I figured I'd write you this email. I hope you find value in it. So, reasons mentioned by podcast guests, he writes, inflation hedge, of course, and um, again, real estate does that. Crisis hedge, yeah, I guess so. Um, I'd, you'd be better off with a box of monster, uh, uh, a monster box full of silver coins, in my opinion. It's hard to, hard to bring a, a ounce of gold, um, you know, to the grocery store. Store of value, yeah, I guess store of value also uh, definitely for gold, uh, but I could say we're the same for real estate, and has been used as money for thousands of years, which is great, you know, and I agree with that. Um, real estate has also been around for thousands of years. Reasons not mentioned. Now, this is where Chris is making um, his points. Okay, so first he says, currently not frothy or overvalued. So uh, why do I say it is not? This is him reading, by the way, now. So Chris says, why do I say it's not overvalued right now? The first reason is that by most people's metrics, the stock market is overvalued, and many agree uh, that the bond market is too. You said yourself that you think the real estate market has become a bit frothy. Some well-known names out there are saying that everything's in a bubble. Whether or not you agree with that sentiment, an asset is on par with its value is preferable from an investment standpoint uh, to one that is priced above its par value. I haven't heard of any metrics that claim gold is overvalued. I agree with that. And then he um, um, puts up a bunch of uh, graphs that were helpful, but are hard to describe. But basically, he says, you can see that gold is about in the middle uh, with the stock market. Silver is undervalued. So basically, gold and silver are undervalued compared to other assets. The assertion is also confirmed by the gold-silver ratio. Uh, which, you know, again, the cost of gold, the cost of silver. Uh, it would be interesting to see a similar graph of real estate performance over the past, over the same time period. But most interesting and related thing I could find was, and then there's a link that shows basically that home prices is going up more than gold and that it's cyclical over time. So let me respond to this part before we move on. Um, First of all, yeah, I agree that asset prices are high, but here's a, here's something to think about. First of all, um, gold hasn't moved in about a decade. I don't know if that's a good thing. I don't know if it's a good thing. I mean, why? I mean, if you if you invest in gold ten years ago, and your gold's worth the same amount of money, is that a good investment? I don't know. I mean, yeah. So it's you know it, it hasn't gone up at all. Um, it, it it blipped for a bit uh, during the financial markets meltdown, and then it it, it it came back down, and it's been pretty much the same uh, since that time. The other thing I would say is that in terms of um, the graphs that you talk about, 
that show, you know, that there's this cyclical pattern. I might be more convinced um, that this was the case if I only looked at real estate as the value of single family homes, which I don't. As a real estate investor, uh, specifically in my case as a, a multifamily uh, real estate investor, I make money not just by the value of the property. I also make money through cash flow. I make money through the tax benefits, such as depreciation. So I'm also saving money. I also, I also am hope, you know, I also uh, look for appreciation. But unlike gold, I don't hope for appreciation. That's the key here, right? In fact, all the multifamily real estate that we do in Investor Club, we don't hope at all. Hope is not a good approach to investing. What we do is we drive in equity through forced appreciation. We do things to actively increase rents and decrease expenses, right? You can't do that with gold. All you can do with gold is hope. Also with real estate, we usually have significant leverage, 70 to 80% loan to value. So the actual value of the property does not have to increase even that much for you to make a lot of money because a small value a uh, small increase in value is basically going to leverage itself up and that leveraged appreciation is going to give you a higher return. So the bottom line is if you just looked at the housing market and single family homes and value, it's just simply not a good metric to compare gold and multifamily real estate or even single family real estate for that matter, single family homes. It's just not a good metric to compare uh, the money-making uh, uh, opportunity between those investments. Now, going back to your um, letter here, he says, The second point concerns government regulation of real estate. It's pretty easy for governments to tax and increase taxes on real estate. Uh, he says, I remember hearing something a while back about Italy doubling or tripling their real estate tax. But I can't remember the details except that real estate is the main store of wealth in Italy. Like you, I'm a cash flow investor and w when it comes to real estate. If the government were to increase taxes on the sale of a property, it would probably lead to a decrease in the value of the property. In addition, if they increase the taxation of the cash flow of the property, it could drastically decrease the value of the property. Assuming cap rates stay the same, the after-tax NOI would be significantly decreased. While I don't think any of this is in the pipeline right now, it could be in the future. I never would have uh, thought that governments would freeze bank accounts, but that's happened in Europe. Personally, I love, in real, I love investing in real estate. However, I'm not as comfortable holding wealth in real estate right now as I was five years ago. There's a lot more risk now in real estate and in the stock market that just isn't present in precious metals. When real estate becomes a less beloved and safer, less expensive asset, I'll be jumping back in. I hope these points make sense. Thanks and keep up the good work. So um, thank you for that, by the way. I appreciate the comments and let me uh, reply. So again, uh, I will say that there's a lot of things I disagree in with this. First of all, I just disagree with the idea that real estate has more governmental risk in general. So listen, taxes can go up and down. Uh, they'll probably continue to go up, but so will rents. 
One of the things we forget that's really important to remember, and it's pure economics here, is that if I ask how many people that you know markets have are in a bubble right now, uh, in this group, probably everybody, almost everybody is going to raise their hand and say, yeah, real estate markets are a little bit of a bubble. You get a little bit of a bubble in the, the stock market, et cetera. But then if I say, how many people think inflation is imminent? The same number of hands will go up. Now, herein lies the problem. You cannot have like significant inflation and expect asset prices to go down. It just doesn't work that way. If there's inflation, by definition, asset prices are going up. So anyway, that's as an aside. Just let's go back to the government issue again. I don't think you can look at banking in small countries in Europe, uh, like Italy, uh, Greece, etc. I hear people comparing to what's going on there, to what's happening in America. The, the size of the economy is fundamentally different. And it's you know, it, it's not the same thing for it to happen there. Uh, freezing bank accounts in Europe is very different from freezing bank accounts in the U.S. This is in line with my argument that I do not believe that there is a zombie apocalypse in the forecast anytime soon. Also remember that when it comes to things like commercial real estate, commercial real estate owners are some of the wealthiest people in the world. Now, do you think they don't have any power uh, in the government through lobbying, etc.? Of course they do, right? So you can say this could happen, that could happen, about just about everything. But I very much doubt that it happens in the place where the wealthiest people in the world have the majority of their wealth. Now, um, on the contrary... To your point on government regulation, I would point out that the U.S. government made it illegal to own gold in 1933, and it wasn't legal again until January 1st, 1975. So to your point, the government has made owning gold illegal before, and the taxation on selling gold is outrageous. I don't even know what the rates are, but it's super high because I don't own gold, so I don't sell it. But capital gains on on gold is basically like ordinary income. I mean, it's insane. So, I mean, we don't have to worry about taxes being a problem for gold. It already is. And again, going back to the whole notion of the government and its role there, Roosevelt made gold illegal during the Depression so that the Fed could increase the money supply. That was the story. See, at the time, the Fed had to have, back because there was a gold standard, they had to have 40% gold backing of Federal Reserve notes issued. So they could, you know, they kind of were up against the wall. They needed to print money. So what did Roosevelt do? He confiscated it. He confiscated gold. He put it in Fort Knox, and they started printing money. Now, it helped us get out of the Depression, but I would say this. It has never been, nor will it ever be, illegal in this country to own real estate, okay? Again, we have already seen government take the most extreme measure on gold. It isn't going to happen on gold anytime soon. It's not going to happen. These issues are not going to come up with real estate. Why? Because the zombie apocalypse is not in the forecast, and we've got to stick with the fundamentals, right? 
Buying and hoping is not a very good investment strategy as a general rule. Logic is. And so I'm not saying that I'm against owning gold. I just, you know, I'm, for me personally, I don't see the role. I think gold is, for the most part, I think of gold as money. And, you know, if you're hedging the dollar or something like that, maybe that's worthwhile for you. But for me, again, I don't see the point. I don't carry much. I don't hold much cash. I deploy it very, very quickly. And so for me, real estate has all the functions I want on hedging the economy and then all the additional benefits, specifically the tax advantages, specifically being able to control an asset and drive in equity. Those are things that you just can't do with gold. All you can do with gold is hope. And if you've been a gold bug for the last 10 years, and that's been your, you know, in your gold, your gold heavy, you basically have seen zero growth in your money in a decade. I mean, that's insane to me. That's downright insane. So now the hope is, the hope is that all of a sudden you're going to have a gold bull market. Well, I don't know. I'd rather actively pursue my my returns. That's my take. But again, I do appreciate the note because I think it's, you know, it's something that I'm, you know, listen, I don't have to be right. These are just my opinions. Um, but I do appreciate you taking the time to write all that out. That's actually it for questions that I could read aloud on the show uh, and play uh, this week on Ask Buck. Um, but I do want to encourage those of you who had more in-depth stuff about, you know, specific funds, about people, about things that I couldn't really answer. Um, check out Wealth Formula, the Wealth Formula Network, because I think that's where the, you know, more sort of the insider stuff comes out. That's where you hear about, you know, who we blacklisted, and who we want to stay away from, and all that kind of good stuff, juicy stuff. So WealthFormulaRoadmap.com, and you can check that out. Anyway, uh, let's take a break, and I'll be right back after these messages. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Uh, hope you enjoyed that episode of Ask Buck. Um, I like the, I have to tell you, I like the audio questions uh, more in general, just because it's nice to hear your voice, but for some reason this time around, everyone seemed to be a little shy about it. Um, you know, uh, we I've talked a lot this uh, on this episode already, so I'll, I just want to take this opportunity to remind you of a couple things. First, um, if you're not part of the investor group and you are an accredited investor, meaning you make $200,000 a year or you have a million dollars net worth outside of your primary residence, then you should sign up for Investor Club and put some of this knowledge to use. Although a lot of things that we even talked about today, like banking and, and things like that, Wealth Formula Banking, you don't, you don't need to be accredited for that. Um, just go to wealthformulabanking.com and check that out. But the other thing is Wealth Formula Network. So who is Wealth Formula Network for? Okay, so if you geek out on this stuff, right? I mean, if you are a person who really likes to talk about money, business, investing, and people around you don't like to talk about those things, and you want to find a group or a community that you can have those discussions with and communicate with and be, you know, learn from one another, that's where Wealth Formula Network really shines. And I mean, there is a course... And the course is great. It's got some big names in it. 
Tom Wheelwright and Ken McElroy and, you know, just a lot of the smart folks, Kevin Day, et cetera. And uh, it's a great foundational piece. But once you get that foundation down, having a community to share with is where it's at. So check it out, wealthformularoadmap.com. We'd love to have you join us. Now, the last thing I want to say is, listen, go to wealthformula.com. Do me a favor. If you like this show, if you're listening to it, give me a five-star review. Go to wealthformula.com. It's simple. You just click, give us a five-star review, and it, it's really easy to do. Uh, and that is just really helpful if you enjoy this show. And the reason is that it helps keep our rankings high. It it helps us to com- continue to attract talent, um, you know, people, interesting people to talk to, et cetera. So go ahead and do that, please. Uh, go to wealthformula.com and, uh, and uh, make sure you subscribe to the show while you're there as well. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Worried about saving too little too late for retirement? The Wealth Accelerator may be exactly what you need. With the help of some of the oldest and most reliable insurance companies in the country, Wealth Accelerator allows you to take most of the upside of any good year in the stock market and use bank loans to magnify those returns significantly. And what if the stock market has a bad year? No need to fear. Wealth Accelerator is engineered so you don't participate in the losses of the market, no matter how bad of a year it is. Sounds too good to be true, right? But it's not. It's simply the same financial engineering that the ultra-wealthy have been doing for years. Now it's your turn. Check it out for yourself by going to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com.